Father, we pray that the words we just sang would be more than pretty words, but that they would reflect more and more the true desires of our hearts. And we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit tonight upon us to make it so. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Boy, that's a keeper, Jesse. We're just together. I like that one. <clears throat> well, it's nice to be together again. Thank you guys for uh, coming out on a beautiful Sunday night. I hope you had a good Lord's Day. I did. Um, it's always good to get together with you all. Um, I just can't tell you how much this little congregation means to me. I, I see God at work among us in so many amazing ways and it's a real joy and a privilege to be able to share it with some other people who are friends in Christ. Um, We're continuing tonight a little series looking at the book of Jude. It's one of the shorter books in the Bible. Uh, We debated tonight whether we should start having William read the whole book since it's so short these little uh, two verse readings uh, don't stretch his reading ability uh, sufficiently (laughs) and uh, we might just start having him read larger sections just to See how that goes. Um, I want to tell you right at the beginning, by way of, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, disclosure, that I am very indebted for everything I want to say tonight to my friend Dick Lucas, whose commentary on Second Peter and Jude is one of the best commentaries I've bumped into. He combines two Peter and Jude because they have thematic overlap and some of the same uh, language. And his little section on Jude is worth the book by itself. It's a very, very thoughtful, well-put-together commentary. And anything I say remotely valuable is going to be me trying to paraphrase Dick, who I think is one of the best preachers you can find. So I commend this book to you. Um, Let's open our Bibles to Jude. We're going to look at just two verses, actually... uh, two very important verses on page 1244. William read it for us, uh, so I ask you to take a look at it and see that he's not making it up and I'm not either. And uh, what we find together, I think, is what God wants us to know. Uh, I want to give you three headings. Um, A uh, Bible commentator looking at the book of Jude came up with uh, an interesting statistic for any preacher Uh, In the book of Jude, there are apparently 60 triplets. Uh, In this short book of of 25 verses, Jude, um, the servant of Jesus and brother of James, like every preacher, seemed to find threes all over the place. And so you see it in the first verse, those who've been called, those who've been loved, those who've been kept. Verse 2, mercy, peace, and love. Well, some clever commentator went through and counted 60 of those in this short book. So, I find justification for every three-point sermon I've ever preached. It's obviously inspired that uh, the triune God thinks in threes. So, I want to give you three headings tonight. These are the salvation we share. That's verse uh, 3a. The faith we defend. That's verse 3b. And the opposition we expect, that is verse 4. So those are the three headings we're going to look at briefly tonight. First of all, the salvation we share. Jude writes, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share. Um, it'd be tempting to gloss right over that because he's going to go move on to some other important issues. But I want to spend a moment thinking about what Jude has just acknowledged. You and I have a salvation And it's a salvation that we share together. 
Uh, verse 3 begins with a very beautiful word. It's a little bit lost in English. What's translated, dear friends, is actually um, in the King James Version translated, beloved. And it's, it's from the Greek word agape. And it, it's, it's loved ones. It's dear, dear, dear friends. It's the people I love. And I said at the beginning, uh, that's the way I think of you guys. Uh, you're not just people who go to the same church as I do. You're not just friends that I nod at and because I know you. Uh, you are very dear to me. Uh, you are beloved by me, and we are together beloved by the Lord. So in, uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3, Jude says this idea of love over and over again. Loved by God, he, he, he uh, blesses them that they would know love in abundance. And the ver- first word of verse 3 is about love. You and I share this relationship of love. And I hope you experience Trinity that way more and more. I, I hope that that will be more and more true of us. That we really are a community that loves each other. That, that we are committed to each other. And that we share some things. You see, the, the word here uh, translated share is actually koinonia. Uh, the, the fellowship sharing that's being described here is it's a it's a word that is very hard to translate it it means uh, something that we have deeply in common uh, i think the esv translates this the, the the common faith and i think linguistically that's probably correct the word is uh it's an adjective um but it says something that that we have in common it's it's something that we that, that we actually uh, hold very close together. And it's salvation. Uh, salvation is one of those things that we, we throw around a little bit. I remember talking to someone not too long ago, and uh, they, were, they were talking about the Christian faith. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, salvation. You know, we, 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 we all have salvation. But let's talk about the good stuff. You know, and I think they were talking about spiritual gifts and some other aspects of the Christian walk. And... What they had done inadvertently, we're all tempted to do. That's to put salvation down at the bottom of the Christian list. Uh, there's all this good stuff, and then you cut, well, salvation, you know, that's a sort of a throwaway. Well, that's not the way Jude understood it. The salvation that we share is the foundation of everything else. There is nothing greater than the salvation that we share. These days, we often throw around the word salvation or being saved as sort of an equivalent of being a Christian. And it simply means sort of beginning a process of, of uh, walking together in a, in a lifelong pilgrimage of some kind. But that's not, again, the way Jude understands it. The salvation that we share, he describes at the end of his letter, um, in terms of the future. Um, it's something that we can look forward to. Now, it is something we experience today. It was actually accomplished for us long ago, but it's something we will fully experience only in the future. That's uh, how the book ends. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior. So salvation, in Jude's understanding, is all of that, And he's stressing that future shared salvation 
which we treasure together and that we walk in today looking together towards tomorrow. That's the salvation that uh, Jude stresses here at the beginning of his letter. It's a salvation that we share. And it is a precious and priceless gift. It really does give meaning to everything else we do. That's why we sing about it and pray about it. So, the salvation we share. But Jude says, while he would like to talk about that, he'd like to, uh, he was eager to write about that, he instead has to talk about this. Now, we shouldn't put too big a gap between those two things. He, 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 it's not as though he wanted to talk about apples and now he has to talk about oranges. Uh, it's more like he wanted to talk about the joyful bits of our experience of salvation and the joyful bits of, of salvation in Christ. But instead of being able to focus on all of that, he has to narrowly focus on something very specific. And it's the faith that we have to defend. He says... I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, Jude felt he had to write and urge us to contend. The word for contend is it's really a violent word. It's wrestling. It's fighting. It's, uh, it's not a, a passive word. Um, contend isn't a word we use very much. But if you know the word about a, a boxer being called a contender, who, what movie was it who said, I was, was going to be a contender? Godfather. Is that right? Okay. Um, you know, there's this idea that a contender is someone who's going to get in there and really break it up. And that's the way contend is used here. It's, it's an, an urging to engage, to fight. It's a, it's a word of action. Paul uses it to describe the way he tackled his own ministry. He, he wrestled. He struggled, I think is the way the NIV translates it. And then that's the, what you and I are called to do. We are called to actively, fearlessly contend for a faith. It's actually for the faith. It's one of a handful of places in the New Testament where there's this self-conscious realization that we share certain beliefs. It's not... He's not saying here that we should contend for a belief or for a faith that we have. It's actually saying we are to contend for this body of truth that has been entrusted to us once for all. Now, there are several words in that short phrase that we should unpack a little bit. First of all, it was, a, it was a faith that was once for all. In other words, there's a once for allness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, it is something that has been utterly and completely accomplished and that you and I now experience today, but it's the same once for all faith. So each generation has to wrestle with the same gospel. We need to get this straight in our generation. We don't come up with a new gospel every few years. Uh, the church that Trinity is associated with needs to relearn this lesson. The gospel is once and for all. It is a faith that has, that has been uh, once for all accomplished. And uh, what we're called to do is to defend that once for all faith. Um, we just said the creed a minute ago. 
treaty is an interesting document. It is not inspired. It is very much a human document. It's interesting to read the history of the church and to, to see just how human it is. But uh, it, it is a very important document because it is actually an expression of the church doing this. You see, the, the, the creed was written to defend something. Uh, the creed was written to defend the truth of what we believe. Let me just read an interesting quote from Dick. I had never read this before, but it was such an interesting quotation. I wanted to share it with you all. Uh, it comes from a very, very old uh, father, an ancient church writer named Hillary. And Hillary was involved in the uh, debate about the word homoousius, which is used to describe the one substance that the father and the son share. And they had, they had a great and, uh, and uh, long debate about how to use that and whether to use that exact word. And uh, this is what Hillary wrote. This is from one of the footnotes in Dick's book. Hillary, a theologian who defended the retention of the term homoousius, the Nicene Creed, wrote these words. We are compelled by the error of heretics and blasphemers to do what is unlawful, to scale heights, to express things that are unutterable, to encroach on forbidden matters, and which we and when we ought to fulfill the commandment through faith alone, adoring the Father, worshiping the Son together with Him, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, we are forced to stretch the feeble capacity of our language to give expression to indescribable realities. We are constrained by the error of others to err ourselves, the limits of human language, right? To err ourselves in the dangerous attempt to set forth in human speech what ought to be kept in the religious awe of our minds. In other words, the creed uh, is doing something that is very hard and very dangerous to do. It's trying to give voice to inexpressible things. Their infidelity drags us into the dangerous position of having to make a definite statement beyond what heaven has prescribed about matters so sublime and so deeply hidden. That's from uh, his book on the Trinity. Uh, Hillary stresses the point that, uh, you know, in defending the faith, we're, we're actually pushed. We're forced into trying to put into frail human words uh, things that are very difficult to put into frail human words. And that's because the church in Hillary's day and in Jude's day and in our day, the church is called to defend the once for allness of the gospel. Uh, it is not a gospel that we can change. It's not a gospel that we can uh, tweak here and there to make it a little more palatable in our generation. It is a gospel that is once and for all. It is a faith that has a content. And it's not the creed. The creed is simply uh, a record of the debate about these points that is important for us to know living today. So it is a once for all faith. Secondly, it's a faith that has been entrusted uh, this once-for-all faith has been handed down from Christ to the apostles, from the apostles to the first Christians, from the first Christians right down the centuries and the millennia to you and me. That same faith that they lived and which they knew has been entrusted to us by saints and martyrs, by those who have gone before us. 
It has been entrusted to us. It's a very important word. It has been given to us in trust. So we hold this once for all faith given to us by the past in trust for the future. Like these kids sitting here tonight. That faith has been given to us so that we can give it to them and then they can give it to others. Uh, The people who will be coming here on Harvest Sunday, November the 11th. What we're going to give them is the once for all faith that has been given to us. We're simply going to pass it on to them. Uh, There's a wonderful Latin word, traditio, where we get tradition. And a tradition, in the best sense of the word, is something that we have received and that we are going to pass on unchanged we don't take away from it we don't add to it we pass on what has been given to us and so jude stresses this once for all faith that has been entrusted to the saints to the saints Um, that's a very good word you know uh, i think jude paul would be very confused the way we use the word saint today uh we we apply the word saint to a select handful of people who have uh, achieved a certain kind of notoriety. And the way the New Testament understands the word is that the saints are all the people of God, the holy people of God called to live in relationship, this loving relationship with one another and with our God through Christ. That's what sainthood is. And uh, that's the, the body to whom this once-for-all faith has been entrusted. So it's a, it's a faith that's entrusted to a faith community. And you can't really properly pry the faith from the faithful. Uh, the, the faith of the gospel is lived out among the saints. And so at its best, a little group like this is a group of people where what we believe is at the very center of who we are and what we do. In fact, that's what the definition of of being a saint is. The holy ones who have been called out around this life-giving word. So, the salvation we share, which is ours in Christ. The uh, faith we defend. A faith that has been entrusted to us and that we are to contend for. We are to be willing to fight for it. Now, I've just got to say a few words about that. Uh, we live in a day when we have to contend for the gospel. I, I would love to spend all of our time singing praise choruses. Uh, it really would be a joy if that were the situation. That we, could, we could simply sing the kind of song we sang and uh, all of us from the bottom of our hearts say amen and William or someone else stands up and reads a few verses. We all say amen and uh, we go and, and uh, share fellowship with one another. Uh, but... We live in a world where that's not really possible. Uh, we have to contend. We have to be aware of the challenges to us uh, today. And, and that was, by the way, true, as Warren reminded us, at the very beginning. You see, it's never been possible to sing praise choruses by themselves. The church has always been under attack. And so here in verse 4, Jude makes it plain that the opposition that uh, we experience is expected opposition. See, this does not catch God by surprise. It says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, 
And that could be translated in various different ways. It could be talking about the, the condemnation that God intended for them from the beginning. But I think it really is a better translation here in the NIV, which stresses that, that what we see in terms of opposition is actually that which has been foreseen in the Scriptures. It was foreseen in the New Testament. It's, it's foreseen here in Jude. Uh, it's foreseen elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's certainly foreseen in the Old Testament that, uh, that the, the Word of God would be under attack. And so we shouldn't be surprised that uh, we see opposition today. We shouldn't be surprised that, uh, as at our convention a few weeks ago, um, truths of the gospel can be denied. Um, we shouldn't be at all surprised. It is expected Now, Jude points out something that is very important for us to understand. The opposition that Jude is talking about here is not opposition from outside the church. It's actually opposition inside, inside the church. Uh, Jude says certain men have secretly slipped in among you. Uh, We looked a few weeks ago at the passage where Jesus talked about um, seed, weeds growing up among uh, the, the seed. And uh, that passage is debatable, what exactly the Lord meant by that. This is not debatable. <laughs> uh, here, Jude is making it very plain that within the church, within the church, there are people who have intentionally slipped in and their purpose is to change the grace of God into license for immorality First thing that we have to be aware of, this opposition. The second opposition is to deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Immorality. It's interesting. Immorality, in Jude's mind, goes hand in hand with false teaching, with false understanding. Immorality and false doctrine go together. They're they're always together. And you'll see this in other New Testament letters as well, other New Testament writings. Immorality is always accompanied by uh, untrue doctrine. And we see that today, don't we? I mean, it's very interesting. We've spent all this time uh, here in the first few years of the 21st century arguing about sexual ethics. And it really would be tempting to say, can't you talk about something else? But the fact is that whole argument about immorality is an aspect of this very Conflict, the, the conflict which has to do with denying Christ. Um, we, we can't, in fact, separate those things. They will always go together. And uh, so we have to contend. We have to contend for what the Bible says about morality and moral teaching. And as we do that, we have to stand firmly for the identification of Jesus, who he is. Who Jesus is, is at the heart of what we believe. And to see Jesus diminished is certainly to see the gospel diminished. There, there is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ. So there is opposition. We are to expect it. It is not a surprise. It doesn't surprise God. It should not surprise us. It was written about long ago. And uh, there are those among us today who have slipped into the fellowship of the church and are uh, actually changing grace into something which is 
uh, profoundly spiritually unhealthy. Uh, just let me try to wrap up with a few words of application that I think are timely for us. Um, we as a little fellowship of people are called to contend. Uh, Jude was calling the church in the first century to contend, and you and I also have to contend. Uh, you and I, like them, have to be willing to stand up and speak the truth, and that will be costly. Uh, people will get angry with us. Uh, I think today the the one unpardonable sin is to come across as in any way intolerant. And so we all know the pressure not to say anything, not to speak up. Um, but we have to contend. The interesting thing is, in the Bible, you know, in uh, Philippians, Paul talks about people attacking him personally. And uh, Paul says in, in Philippians 1 or 2 that it doesn't really matter what they think about me. Uh, they're preaching the gospel. Apparently there were some preachers in Philippi who were putting Paul down. He said, it doesn't really matter what they think about me. What's important is that Christ is exalted. Uh, in Galatia, however, when the gospel was under attack, Paul, like a protective mother bear, stands up and he is willing to really engage. And, and even in Philippians, he's willing to engage for the gospel. He, he is very, very willing to fight for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Willing to look the other way when it was him, himself under attack, but willing to fight tooth and nail for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the, the uh, beloved ones, right? It's interesting. We get those exactly opposite. <laughs> we're very willing to fight when it comes to me personally, or we're willing, you know, if someone says something mean about us, we're very willing to fight then, but very unwilling to fight when it comes to the gospel. We've all been taught that personal attacks aren't permitted, but you can say anything you want to about Jesus. So we can go to a convention, and the one thing you're not allowed to do is make a personal reference from the floor of the convention, but you can say anything you want to about Jesus. You can deny the gospel. You can deny who he is. You can deny the, the sovereignty of Christ, which, is, of course, is what verse 4 is talking about, the, the, uh, the sovereignty of the Lord. You can attack all those things, but we've been taught that you've got to be polite. You know, there's enormous pressure. I don't know if it's an Episcopal thing or, or just a 21st century American thing, but we're all taught that you've got to be very nice, right? You don't say anything that upsets anybody. Unless it gets personal, then you're free to say what you have to say in self-defense. Well, Jude sees it the other way around. It really doesn't matter what you think about me, what you think about any church leader, really, ultimately, does it? I mean, we're all sinners. You can hardly think anything bad enough about me. You don't know the half of it. Uh, so it doesn't really matter what, what you think about your church leaders, but it matters very much, very, very much what is said about the Lord Jesus. Now, let me uh, just close with one last word of application. It has to do with who Jesus is. Uh, there's an unusual choice of words here in verse 4 that we simply have to comment on. It's, it's almost unique. Jesus is called the only sovereign and Lord. Now, that, that 
doesn't sound all that significant perhaps to us. But the word translated sovereign is despotus. And it's a word that is only used to describe God in the New Testament. Uh, God is the sovereign one. Well, Jude here is saying one of the most profound things in the New Testament about who Jesus Christ is. And we can't miss it. The false teachers are those who deny the absolute sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude closes with a reference to God our Savior. And there's a great deal of debate about who he's talking about. Well, it seems undeniable to me that he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. And Jesus is God. We have the highest possible view of who Jesus is. Now, the King James Version translates uh, verse 4 a little differently um, because they just couldn't quite get their mind around the fact that Jude would say such a thing. It sounds very advanced for an apostle to have written. For an apostle to have identified Jesus as the sovereign one is, uh, well, that is quite striking in the context. But I don't think there's any getting around it. That is the one Jude is writing about. Now, bear in mind, he sees himself as a servant of Christ. And it's intriguing to think that it was his brother. (laughs) It was intriguing to think that Jude was describing his own half-brother as he wrote these words. Uh, Dick speculated that one of the reasons Jude did not mention his human relationship with uh, Jesus as brother is because that's really a matter of unimportance. Um, We think the human relationship would be the most important one. But actually, as Jude here is moved by the Holy Spirit to describe it, the really important one is not that he is his human brother, half-brother, but that he is a servant, a slave of that one. That Christ is his all, his, his sovereign Lord, and has uh, the full authority of God himself. I mean, just imagine, well, maybe you shouldn't imagine that of your own brother. Uh, but it, it's quite a statement for Jude to make about Jesus. And it's really uh, an understanding which goes right through this book. It only makes sense. The book only makes sense in light of that, assert, that certainty. Well, I want to see in my own life that extreme Christ-centeredness. Uh, I really do want to live out what our little slogan at Trinity says, that we are Christ-centered. That Jesus really is the expression of the triune God that we're called around, that we, that we gather around as loved ones, that we love each other in light of that loving relationship we have with Christ. Uh, that He really is the sovereign Lord. That He speaks with authority on every issue. I mean, we really, we really don't have to debate it. <laughs> the sovereign Lord has spoken, right? Now, we want to make sure we understand Him, but the sovereign Lord has spoken to us. And so his word is more than of passing interest to us. It's not religious window dressing. When Jesus speaks to us, he speaks as God himself. 
Well, that's, that was Jude's understanding. And in this day, when we have to contend for the faith, I hope that'll be our understanding. That we, you and I will assert the authority of Christ. That Warren, as you go off to the mission field, that you will remember you go like Jude as a servant of Jesus. And that you will take his word humbly and sensitively, but recognizing his authority. I'm so proud of Warren. We're going to pray for him in just a minute. Uh, he is going to be going off uh, later this week to uh, Central Asia to uh, have a happy reunion with a certain lovely young missionary named Christina and also to explore the possibility of becoming a missionary himself uh, in a foreign land. And we'll be praying for him. Well, as we seek to be witnesses in our day, whether it's on the mission field of Central Asia or right here in Dallas, Texas, um, I pray that we'll have that, that Christ light that leads us and inspires us and fills us with gospel confidence and gospel hope. That'll be our prayer for you, brother. And it's my prayer for all of us, that all of us will truly be centered on the Lord Jesus. Well, uh, let's close in prayer um, that God would make this so among us. Gracious God, thank you very, very much for tonight. And Lord, we do live in a day when your word is under attack, when the gospel is under attack by those who've slipped in among us. We we are not surprised by this, Lord. Your word tells us of it. Uh, we forget that from time to time. Uh, but we pray, Father, that you would help us to fully contend for the truth, uh, for the faith that has been once for all entrusted to us. We pray you'd help us to grow in understanding that faith and then help us to grow in sharing that faith, Father, to contend for it. Uh, Father, we, we do pray very much for our church family here at the season of the harvest that you would help us please to bear witness to this life-giving truth Uh, father we pray too you'd help us to understand the connection between the way we live our lives the morality the purity of life that you call us to and also the uh, truth of who jesus is and what he has done for us forbid lord that we would make uh, the grace that jesus died to bring us a kind of license for immorality Father, we're all given to this. We look for excuses. We want to justify ourselves. Uh, Please knock those props away and help us, gracious God, truly to yield ourselves in thought and word and deed to your Son, our Sovereign Lord. You have entrusted to Him, Father, all things. All power and authority is His. We praise You for it and we praise You for Him. Uh, Please fill our hearts tonight, Lord, with gratitude and praise. For Jesus' sake. Amen.